When Sydney was a toddler, I took her to a Somerset High School basketball game, as I often did with our kids, and, and uh, we were watching the game, and first half, the jumper came out, the briar jumper, and he's walking around the stands and doing his thing, and every time he would come by, Sydney would kind of look at him and wave and, and just get excited, but she didn't know whether to be excited or a little scared. You know, if he got too close, she was a little worried, and, and, and she was intrigued by him, though. And if he would do something, boy, she would just laugh. She just loved it, loved it. So at halftime, we walked out to uh, get something from the concession stand. As we came around the corner to the concession stand, the jumper was there. And she was beside herself excited. And as we approached the jumper, we got about 10 feet away. And the jumper did something that Sidney did not anticipate. The jumper pulled his head off. And so you have this giant rabbit who goes and pulls his head off in her face. I mean, she was like this, and she wanted to have nothing to do with the jumper at that point. She started screaming, crying, and we left and went back in. And, and anytime the jumper even got in the gym, she was done. We wound up leaving and going home. And, and it just reminded me of our passage this morning, because our passage this morning calls us to remove mask. And essentially what happened is that jumper removed his mask and revealed who he was, right? And we live in a day, though, where it's really easy to walk in and to put our church mask on and to keep people at arm's length and not to genuinely love them. But our passage this morning calls us away from that. It calls us to have a genuine love for one another and to be involved in one another's lives. And so we want to look this morning at Romans 12, verses 9 through 13. We're going to tackle these verses together and see how far we make it through them. There's going to be a kind of a point of no return. I'll go ahead and warn you. And, and we'll, we'll find out how far we go. We may stop or we may just kind of hammer right through all of them. But Paul in Romans 12, beginning in verse 9, writes this. He says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, this first phrase, let love be genuine, should be considered kind of the heading for this section. It's a, a section that calls us to have genuine love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you remember, some of you, if, if you know your Bible, what is, last week, Romans 12, 4 through 8, I said is a sister passage of 1 Corinthians 12. Do you remember this? 1 Corinthians 12 deals with what? It deals with the body. Romans 12, 4 through 8, deals with what? The body. Now, what does 1 Corinthians 13 deal with? Love. It's the love chapter, right? We know that. As soon as you say 1 Corinthians 13, you understand it's about love, and we understand contextually that it's coming out of Paul dealing with the body. What does it look like to function as the body? Well, we see the same exact progression here. 
In Romans 12, 4 through 8, when Paul is dealing with the body and talking about how the body works together for the common good to, to minister to one another, care for one another. And then he goes right into love. Right? If the body is going to function together as it should, then love has to be at the forefront of that functioning. It has to be something that we are known for that characterizes us. And this love must be genuine. Let love be genuine, Paul says. That simply means that this love should be without hypocrisy. It's, it's the word that in Greek that they use for actors. Those who took the stage, the, the hypocrites who put on a mask on stage for performances. And Paul's concern here is that within the body that our love would be without hypocrisy. That our love would be genuine. That it would be pure. That it would be sincere towards one another. So it would be a love that is unmasked. A love that leaves the stage of performance, so to speak, isn't trying to impress one another, isn't trying to look like something it's not, but it's a love that leaves that stage and comes down and just simply lives life with your brother and sister in Christ. It's a love that resembles the pure, untainted love of Jesus on the cross. It's a love that we are called to exemplify towards one another, not in a way that we are acting, but in a way that we are genuinely concerned for the good of others. Now, that presents us with somewhat of a dilemma, somewhat of a problem, I believe, if we're honest. See, our problem is that we often find it much easier to act like we love one another than to genuinely love one another, don't we? We, we find it easier to say that we love, but we find it much more difficult to speak the truth to one another in love. We find it easy to say that we would sacrifice for the needs of others. But then when that moment comes that someone actually needs something from us, they need our time, our energy, our money, it's more difficult to sacrifice our energy, our time, our resources, our preferences for what someone else needs from us. We find it easy to act like we love people when they make us happy, don't we? But we find it much more difficult to love them when they've disappointed us or if they've even hurt us. It's much more difficult to love them. We find it easy to act like we love people when they make good decisions. But then it is much more difficult to love when someone falls into sin, when someone treats us wrong, when someone makes bad choices. When someone does not live in wisdom, when someone reverts back to the sinful nature, love can be difficult. Love can be difficult because love requires sacrifice. Love requires risk. It requires vulnerability. It requires an investment of time and energy. It requires a willingness to be hurt. If you're going to genuinely love someone, you have to be willing to be hurt. You have to be willing to be disappointed. You have to be willing to invest time and energy. You have to will be willing to be vulnerable and take a risk. But that's what love is. And so the question is, how do we do this? How do we move past just acting like we love someone? How do we move past walking around with this mask and genuinely love those around us? I think the precedent is set in what we just meditated on. The precedent is said in 1 John 4.19, if you want to just flip over there and, and we'll listen to this together again. But in 1 John 4.19, we, we read this. We read that we love because He first loved us. 
You and I can show genuine love. Why? Because it was shown to us. We are the recipients of genuine love. It's the same thing that, that Pastor Mike read in the, call, in, the, in the hearing the word at the beginning of verse 7 of 1 John 4, where, where John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, look where he goes to. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, what? We also ought to love one another. God is the precedent. God is the example. God is the one who has genuinely demonstrated love to us. No mask. He has been genuine in love towards us. We, we, we hear Jesus say in John 15, Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. That what? What is the example? Do you know? That someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus did that. His love was genuine. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. The precedent is that his love was genuine. Christ's life and death were without a mask. Christ's life and death were the glorious fulfillment of God, or fullness of God on display, that we might know what genuine love is. There was no mask when Jesus walks up to the tomb of Lazarus and weeps. There, there was no mask on Jesus when he looks out upon the crowd and he's moved to compassion. Because he sees that there is sheep without a shepherd. There, there's no mask on Christ when he's betrayed by his own, yet walks the path to Calvary. There's no mask in that moment. There's no mask when he endures the scorn of the cross. There's no mask there. That is genuine love displayed. It's genuine love given for us. And so those of you who are unbelievers, you long to know genuine love. And you need to know that genuine love is found in Christ. You should be able to see it among us. You should be able to see it among God's people. But you need to know that without a doubt, it is found in Christ. It is seen in Christ. There is no mask there. So you wonder, unbeliever, you want to know what is it like for someone to sacrifice on your behalf? then wonder no more. Christ did that. Christ did sacrifice on your behalf. You, you wonder, you yearn for one compassionate towards your fears and needs, one who would look to you and understand your fears, who would understand your needs. Then look no further than the compassionate Christ who looked upon His people and said they are without a shepherd. He had compassion upon them. You hope, unbeliever, for your guilt and shame to be met with love and grace? And your hope is going to be found at the cross of Christ. The hope that you long for, that your guilt and shame is not met with just judgment and wrath, it is found at the cross of Christ. Outside of the cross of Christ, that is what awaits. 
That your guilt before God, your sin, your rebellion is indeed met with justice and wrath. But it is grace and love and mercy that is found at the cross. And so you want to know that, you long for that, then come to Christ. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ, unbeliever. Now, believers, we need to understand, we need to know. We talked about this back in, I think it was July. We talked about the fact that genuine love must be a part of the DNA of the people of God. You remember John um, 13, 34, and 35, right? Where, where Jesus says that one of the hallmarks, one of the identifying marks that the world will know that we are his people is what? That we love one another. We talked about how he gives the new commandment, right? It's not just love your neighbor, but the new commandment that Christ brings is that you love one another with the love that he loved us. It's, a, it's our DNA. It's who we are. So we see throughout the New Testament, that's who we're called to be. That's how we're called to be toward one another. So that in 1 John 3.11, we read, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He's talking about from the beginning, as in Genesis, Cain and Abel. That we are to love one another. In 1 Corinthians 16, 14, Paul says, Let all that you, be, that you do be done in love. In Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, we're called to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We're to love one another, and the precedent, the example, is the love of Christ. In Hebrews 6, 10, we read that, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. God sees the love that you have for one another. He looks and he is aware of that. In 1 Peter 1.22, Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We are to love one another with a genuine love. Because the sacrifice that Christ made for us should lead us to sacrifice our own time, our own energy, our own resources for the good of others because we love them just as Christ loved us. Christ's love drives us to love others in the same genuine, real, sacrificial way. We are to be a people who love one another. So Paul says, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. And this, these, these, these verses, verses 9 through 13, there's five principles. There's a lot of statements here. Paul just kind of just rattles them off. He, he hits one thing after another. Um, they abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another, show honor, do not be slothful. You get, you get this feeling of this, this kind of rhythm, right, that Paul's into. He's just kind of jotting things down, saying, here's what you do, here's what you do, here's what you do. This is what it looks like to live your life out as a follower of Christ. As we do this, I, I believe 9 through 13 is, is geared toward and focused on the people of God. And so in here, I'm just going to kind of lump all these statements together into five principles that we see about what does it look like to have genuine love for the family of God? What does it look like to have genuine love for the body of Christ? Five principles. Here's the first one in verse 9b, the second part of verse 9. Is it genuine brotherly love hates evil? And loves what is good. If we genuinely love one another, we are going to hate what is evil and we are going to hold fast to what is good. Paul uses pretty strong language here. When he, when he says to abhor what is evil and to hold fast to what is good, these are strong words. This isn't something where you go, wow, well, I wonder what Paul kind of means here. I, I'm, 
I'm kind of unclear on what Paul's saying. I don't know. No, he's very clear. We are to hate what is evil. And we are to cling to, to hold fast to, to be glued to what is good. You see, genuine love does not dabble with evil. Genuine love does not play around with evil. Genuine love does not neglect or shrug off sin as no big deal. No, genuine love hates sin and evil because sin and evil is diametrically opposed to what is good, what is right, what is holy, what is loving. It is diametrically opposed to God himself. And so genuine love that is from God hates what is evil, hates what is sinful. So evil should not just be something that we go, hmm, man, that's unfortunate. That was a bad decision. No, evil should be repulsive to us. It should be repulsive to us. Why? Because we know that while sin may seem to be sweet as candy, it is rotten and poisonous within. It will kill and it will devour, and God hates what is evil. Does God hate? Yes, indeed, He does. Listen to Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. There are six things that the Lord hates. It's not that He just dislikes them. It's not like He goes, oh, I really wish it had been another way, but I'll just deal with it. No, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that are shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Scripture says God hates these things. Think about that. Think about the things that we see. Think about haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Do we not see that? Is that not what is happening with abortion? Do we not see innocent blood shed for the sake of choice? Shed for the sake of convenience? God hates that. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. That long to evil. That go to it as though it's appealing. A false witness that breathes out lies. One who sows discord, disunity. These are serious things. Scripture says God hates these things. He detests these. They're an abomination to Him. Surely we, as God's people, then, must hate the things that God hates. Surely we should detest the things that God detests. We are to cast it out, drive it away, rebuke it when it's among us. Why? Because it is in opposition to our holy God. It's an affront to Him. Evil undermines the very character of God and distorts the good design of God. We see that left and right, that God's good design and plan is distorted by man's evil ways, by man's sin. Evil leads men away from God instead of to God. Evil destroys life, twists the truth, and clouds the way to God. And so we should detest it. It should be repulsive to us. We should flee from it and run from it. We do not run to evil. Because evil is an affront to God. We are sanctified Paul said earlier we are set apart as a holy nation for his glory you know what that means that means that we do not explore evil when we're surfing the web 
means we do not go to websites that glorify and magnify evil and things that are of not, or not of God. It means that we do not justify evil in our business dealings. It means that, that we don't cut corners and, and cheat and lie and manipulate and shrug it off because this is just business and this is just how we do it. No, we do not justify evil in our business dealings. We do not laugh away evil when it's magnified in movies. Well, it's great cinematography. Well, it's funny. It's evil. Call it for what it is. We don't laugh it off. We don't excuse evil in the name of pragmatism because it works. And I say, well, it, it works to do that, so it doesn't really matter how we get there. As long as it works, we're all good. No, we do not excuse evil in the name of pragmatism. It doesn't matter what kind of grades you get on a test. It doesn't matter how your taxes come out. It doesn't matter how successful your business is. You don't excuse evil just simply because it works at the end of the day. No, we call it for what it is. It's evil and it is opposed to God. We do not speak evil against those in the family of God and excuse it because we don't get along or because they did something we don't like. We don't sow disunity in the body of Christ because we're trying to make ourselves look great because we're trying to elevate how good we look before others. No. We call it for what it is. It is evil. It is opposed to God. Brothers and sisters, we hate evil because we love God. And so Paul gives us the contrast. He says to abhor what is evil, hate what is evil, but you hold fast to what is good. You hold fast to what is good. You cling to what is good. We're committed to the way, the life, that is good. Our life should be glued to and wrapped up in the things of God and the things that are good, the things that magnify Him, the things that glorify Him should consume us and we hold fast to those things. It means that we stand indeed against sin and evil while we fight for good. It means that we do what, what the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 10 verse 24 that we consider how do we spur one another on towards love and good deeds we're not spurring one another on towards sin we're not spurring one another on towards um, unholiness we're not spurring spurring one another on towards evil we're spurring one another on towards good deeds that magnify our good and our great god you know what this means this means that, that you and i need discernment we need discernment to know and to navigate and to figure out how to go through life and to discern between what is evil and what is good. Because we live in a day in which Satan is having a heyday of twisting the truth. We saw that in Genesis 3. This is no new strategy. In Genesis 3, what does Satan do? Did God really say? What does he do in Matthew 4 in the temptation of Christ? He brings Scripture to our Lord to the Word made flesh. He tries to twist Scripture. Why would He not try to twist the truth and twist the Scripture for you and I? We've seen it before and we're seeing it today where truth is twisted, truth is manipulated. There, there's a band, Need to Breathe, has a song that I go back to over and over again. It's, it's called Through Smoke. You should listen to it even if you don't like that style of music. It's kind of a folk type style music. 
They have a, a song, Through Smoke. I should have printed the lyrics off, but they talk about it. They ask a question, what do you do when the truth, the truth is separated from lies? Or it's, sorry, it becomes one. Truth and lies look the same. How do, you, how do you see through the smoke when, when what, is to be, what is a lie is called the truth? When what is evil is called good? How do you see through that? How do you discern that? How do you know? What do you do? We need discernment. We need what, what the writer of Hebrews said in, in chapter 5. In chapter 5 of Hebrews, the, the writer's talking about what it looks like to be mature. In verse uh, 14 or 11 through 13, he talks about that... that there's more I have to say about this. I want to give you more, but I can't. He says, because you're immature. I want to give you meat, but all you can take is milk. Then verse 14, he says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Do you know how to distinguish between good and evil? Do you know how to discern? He says in verse, chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He's not saying that it's not important to talk about the elementary doctrines. He's just saying, let's just don't stay there. Let's go and grow in Christ. Let's grow in maturity. Let's learn how to distinguish between good and evil. Let's discern because we're growing and we're maturing. A sign of a mature Christian is one who can discern evil from good. It's one who can look and say, this is godly and this is ungodly. See, we need to learn and we need to understand and be able to discern between what the world would try to convince us is good and what God has declared is good in the truth of His Word. There's a difference. There's a difference. And you and I hear it every day that this is good, this is good, this is good. And all the while, it's just Satan twisting the truth. All the while, it's just saying is Satan manipulating what God has declared as good. So, let's make no bones about it. Life is good. Life is good. It doesn't matter if you're 110 or if you're 10 weeks before birth. Life is good. Life begins at conception. Life is good. And so we as the people of God defend and stand for life. We defend and stand for life. Because God has declared that He is the God of the living. He is the life. Life is good. It's not our choice. We call it for what it is. Life is good. Truth is good. Truth is good. There is truth. There is absolute truth. Truth is not relative. Truth is not what I make of it. Truth is not what the majority says. Truth is not what the latest trend is. Truth is not what makes me feel good. Truth is not what works. Truth is truth. Truth is established by the holy, true God who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life conveniently we just covered so we love God and we defend truth we stand upon truth we declare truth our nation needs to know that truth is not relative the truth is found and anchored in God and in God alone 
So we stand for truth. God's design for marriage and sexuality is good. And we stand upon that. We defend and we promote God's good design. It was not some cover-up for the fall. No, God's good design was established in Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall. That God created male and female in His image. That marriage is male and female. It is God's good design. Marriage is a creation ordinance established at creation for the glory of God. And it doesn't matter what the, the numbers say. It doesn't matter what the trend is. We stand for God's good design. We stand for God's good design for marriage. We stand for God's good design for sexuality. That He created male and female. That sin is ugly. Sin distorts. Sin is real. Sin hurts. Sin brings brokenness. But God restores. God heals. God redeems. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is compassionate. And there is enough grace and mercy and compassion and redemption and restoration in Him for any challenge sin might bring. And that includes the area of marriage and sexuality. We stand for God's good design because God's good design is indeed good. And we call it good. That's who we are as the people of God. So, I would just ask you then, does evil repulse you? Do you find it repulsive do you find evil something that you want to avoid something you want to get away from or do you dabble with sin do you play around with sin do you know how to discern something is is good or evil right or wrong or do you get as close to it as you can Is your moral conscience shaped and molded and strengthened by the Word of God? That you are able and you've trained yourself to discern between good and evil? Or has it been eroded by the world? Has your moral conscience been so twisted and manipulated by the adversary that you have a hard time knowing which way is up when it comes to good and evil? We're the people of God. We've been set apart for the purposes of God. And our prayer should be, God, convict us, lead us to grieve over evils that have crept into our lives. And lead us to repentance in areas where we don't stand for what is good, we don't stand for what is right, we don't stand for what is true. God, lead us to repentance. God, strengthen us to stand. And God, allow us to stand in a way that is loving and gracious and kind. Oh, we stand for what is good. We hate what is evil, but we do so with the love of Christ. We do so with the hope of the gospel that is found in Christ. We don't do so by knocking people over the head with the Bible. We don't do so by shouting mouches on, on Facebook or, or retweeting garbage on Twitter. And we do so in a way that shows the love and the grace and the compassion and the mercy of God. That points people to hope not being in the shifting sands of culture or in the twisting of the truth. But hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. 
That's where we go. That's where we stand. That's how we stand as the salt and the light in this world. The second principle, and we'll stop here, verse 10. Because Paul says that genuine love shows brotherly affection and honor to one another. He says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. See, love one another here can also be understood or translated. Some of your, some of your English texts may say, say, be devoted to one another. It's a characteristic of a family that a family is devoted to one another, that loves one another in a way that when everyone else opposes us, mocks us, cheats us, hurts us, our church family never does. Our church family, our love never changes, it, it never falters, it never fails, but we come in battered and worn from the world and we come in here and we know the brotherly affection of genuine, devoted love. That we know what it means to come together as the family of God, adopted by the King, sharing a kinship bound by the blood of Christ. We know what it means to relate one another affectionately as brothers and sisters, mothers, fathers, 1 Timothy 5, 1-2. Paul says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers younger women as sisters in all purity, that the way we relate to one another is to be as a family. We should show that brotherly affection. Listen, I would be the first to tell you that one of the most difficult aspects of this whole COVID thing for me is the lack of affection. The lack of hugs. The lack of just being able to come up beside you at times and and I know you're like me. You probably violated at times. There's times when, doggone it, I'm just going to give you a hug. Man, I miss that affection. I miss the pats on the back. I miss the, the shaking of hands. You know, we elbow bump and fist bump like germs don't get on elbows and fists. I don't know. I miss that. I miss the physical touch. I miss the affectionate because we are an affectionate people. God's called us to be an affectionate people, to care for one another. We're not created to be lone rangers. We're not created to, to be uh, separated. We're, we're created with a need for others. We're created with a need to embrace those and to be embraced by those who love us. We're to have brotherly affection towards one another. And this brotherly affection naturally leads us to show honor to one another. That we would give honor where honor is due. It says outdo one another in showing honor. Listen, how, how many times do we walk in and we are seeking recognition? Do, do we, is it more characteristic that I come in and seek somebody to recognize me? Or is it something where I want to give recognition to someone else? Am I seeking honor? Am I seeking pats on the back? Hey, honor me, honor me. Or am I seeking ways to say, I want to honor you. I want to recognize you. I want to pat you on the back. I want to encourage you. I want to spur you on. And that should be who we are, that we just long to spur one another on. That we long to encourage one another, to show honor, to show affection to one another. Genuine love abhors what is evil, hates what is evil. And as it does so, 
there's a brotherly affection to that. See, there are moments where I need you. I need you. Emphasis on need, because I'll be honest, there are not very many moments where I want it from you, but I need you with brotherly affection to show a hatred for sin in my life. I need that from you. I, I need you to look at me with brotherly affection, to treat me like a family member, which is what we are, and I need you to come alongside me in love and, say, and call evil and sin for what it is. Maybe it's in the way I say something. Maybe evil or sin creeps into my life and I don't realize it. Maybe there's a blind spot. And instead of looking and going, man, I wish our pastor didn't do that. Instead of looking and going, that is disappointing. No, I, want, I want you to hate that. I want you to hate sin in my life. And I want you to show a brotherly affection that comes alongside of me and shows that. And one that loves what is good. One that clings to what is good. One that spurs me on toward what is good. That's being a family. That's being a family. So let's stand together against evil. And let's show brotherly affection towards one another. Next week, we'll pick up with the three other principles that Paul gives us here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your grace. God, we thank you for your love and your goodness shown to us on the cross. God, we understand that we are able to love one another because you first loved us. That God, you redeemed us and you saved us by your grace. And we are in union with you. God, you dwell within us in such a way that we can genuinely love our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, we are thankful for that because, God, I confess were it not for you and your work in my life, God, I would be so selfish, so consumed with seeking my own honor, and God, so manipulated by the lies of the world. So God, we thank you for loving us, for working in us, for sanctifying us, for growing us, that we might be able to discern what is evil, what is good, and that we might genuinely love our church family. God, I pray this morning, I ask, I beg of you, God, to reveal evil in our lives individually. Reveal what does not honor you, what is sinful, what is rebellious. God, in our church family, would you reveal that to us? God, bring us to repentance Show us, God, if we have grown callous to sin, God, would you bring conviction upon us? Please, oh God, we pray. Please. And God, give us a longing to love 
what is good, to stand for what is good, even when it is not popular, even when it is not something that is easy to do. And we live in a day in which it is difficult. So God, strengthen us to love and to cling to and to stand for what is good and honoring to you. That is our prayer. In the name of Christ, amen. Stand with us as we close our time together.